This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now the death toll from the novel coronavirus called COVID-19, which emerged from Wuhan in China, has passed 2,000. And the number of cases has passed 75,000. That's at the time of this recording. Now most of those cases and those deaths are in China, but other countries in the region have been affected. And the virus has surfaced in patients halfway across the globe. There is also some confusion as we as a species, I mean, our health workers, our scientists, our governments learn more about this virus and respond. A case in point is that China just recently changed the way it is counting cases, and that means there is a drop in cases. Today, I have as my guest Dr. Rebecca Katz, who is a professor and director of the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University. Prior to Georgetown, Dr. Katz spent 10 years at the George Washington University as faculty in the Milken Institute School of Public Health. Her research is focused on global health security, public health preparedness, and health diplomacy. Dr. Katz, thank you very much for joining us this evening. So there seems to be some indication that the rate of increase in the number of new cases and the number of deaths from this virus is declining. But do you think we are in some senses reaching for good news here? I I think we'll we'll take any good news at this point. So I think the fact that we are seeing decreases in the officially reported number of cases is a is a positive sign. As you just mentioned, though, the one of the challenges here is that the um, definitions and how we're counting cases has shifted. So uh, cases that we might have counted yesterday, we're not counting today as official cases. So it's a little hard to interpret what this is, but we definitely have seen a decline in the official reported number of cases within China. And let's let's take that as what it is, which is a, a positive sign and certainly more positive than increasing number of cases. Right. So the question on a lot of people's minds now is how inevitable is it that COVID-19 is here to stay and becomes or has become another coronavirus we have to deal with? at a mortality rate of, say, 2%, are we looking at tens of millions of deaths around the world? And could we be having a similar conversation this time next year? What's your take on that? I think your question is difficult in that it, talking about this is, it requires a fine balance. You want to be as, want to be as forthcoming as possible and inform everybody for what we do know but also acknowledging that there's still a tremendous amount of uncertainty. I think if I were to hazard a guess at this point, I believe that it is most likely that this coronavirus will become ingrained in our communities, that we will see widespread um, cases around the world. I, I don't wanna though make any predictions yet about the number of possible deaths, because I think mm -hmm. that the actions that are currently being taken by, by the Chinese people is, is slowing the spread of the disease. We, we know that. So the fact that, that the, the spread of transmission is being slowed by the extraordinarily aggressive measures that are being taken within China is in many ways buying the rest of the world a lot of time. And my hope is that with that time, there will be advances in identifying possible therapeutics and get us closer to the development of vaccine, which would then change the course of, of um, you know, how many people become infected and pass away. Right, so uh, the human avoidance measures will logically limit its, limit its spread, which, it, which is uh, 
what is happening right now. But I do worry that a certain well, complacency, or maybe more accurately, fatigue may set in. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, and at first, I would say that I believe that I believe that the current measures that are being taken will slow the spread of disease. I don't think it will, will curtail it. Uh, but that that's my guess at this point. Uh, we may we may get extraordinarily lucky, and the measures may in fact stop the spread, and then we can all wash our hands, go home, and then wait for for the next bad thing to happen. Uh, at, at the moment, though, I think this is um, when we talk about complacency. I, I'm not sure that that's the issue at the moment. I I think that we really are in a period of time of trying to figure out what whether this is going to um, uh, I don't want to you know be wrapped up by by this by late spring and and we can move forward and this just becomes something that we the, we write about and we teach about in in public health um, mm -hmm. or come late spring we we may be seeing truly widespread disease around the world at which point it's going to be I don't think complacency is going to be the issue I think at that point it's going to be thinking about how do we deal with something, a, a virus like this that, is, that might be spreading within our communities. Okay, so, um, you know, after SARS emerged in 2003, we saw tremendous avoidance measures, and then we saw new things like hand sanitizers in lift lobbies and so on and so forth. Do you think there will be similar such permanent new measures after this? I don't know. And I think one of the, the, the biggest challenges in public health is trying to predict population behavior. And I, I can say that just in planning for this requires a decent amount of thinking and contingencies. So as I mentioned, you know, by the, by the time May rolls around, we all might be like, ah, oh, remember that virus and let's look at what mm -hmm. the Chinese did and what can we can learn from what happened and, and apply it to our preparedness planning going forward. Or we may be at a point where we are um, rethinking mass gatherings, where we are changing, we have uh, population shifts where we're, we're changing our behaviors. We, we may get to a point at, as you know, that there are many parts of, of, of the world where it is not unusual to see people walking around with face masks on. And that's mm -hmm. something that we just don't often see, certainly in the United States. So do we get to a point where that becomes the, the norm? When you get on a plane, do you expect to see 30 to 50% of people on the plane wearing a mask? Right now, if you saw that, most people would find that deeply concerning. Yet in other in other populations, if you are not wearing a mask, it's it's looked at as if you are not participating and contributing to public health. So I I don't know if we're I don't I don't know where we're going to be in a couple of months. To be perfectly honest, right? A couple of months would probably tell really. How equipped are pub, global public health systems? Obviously, there are big differences uh, between regions between countries. But in general, how equipped are global public health systems in to deal with a new pandem pandemic on that potential scale? And what is needed in terms of investment in public health to deal with this sort of new public enemy number one? It's a great question. 
the the international health regulations actually obligate all countries to be able to develop certain sets of core capacity to be able to prevent, detect, and respond to public health emergencies. And because of that, there is a pretty robust assessment process to be able to, to apply a set of metrics to identify how countries are doing in building those capacities. And unfortunately, the majority of the world is actually quite unprepared and, and do not have sufficient capacity for detection for laboratory diagnostics, for surveillance, for a public health workforce, for um, rapid response teams. So all the things that we we think are important for for responding to an outbreak are are severely lacking in many parts of the world. And layered on top of that is the is the issue of health care. So I'm talking about public health systems, but we also have the challenge of health care. So it doesn't the, the best surveillance system in the world doesn't matter if you don't have a sufficient number of clinicians available to, to treat people or if the, the population doesn't actually have access to care. So we also have severe deficiencies around the world in actually being able to access care. And the other challenge here is that a lot of times when we measure in all of these metrics for thinking about how prepared a country might be, we often mm-hmm. don't look at subnational capacity. So there'll be kind of one metric or one measure for an entire country, even though we know that there might be tremendous variation between different parts of a country and different cities or rural regions. So it, it's, um, I think it, it is fair to say that a, a good part of the world is does not have sufficient capacity at this point in time. It's not to say that they don't want it. I mean, I think that that um, you know, almost almost all governments really want to be able to the build this capacity. Checkpoints now surround China's lockdown. So do you think that um, given the way this virus has spread and is spreading, do you think that this is the biggest test in recent years, uh, bigger than uh, Ebola, bigger than SARS, bigger than MERS, uh, given, given the scope, scope and scale of it? Now, given the fact that we're less than two months in at this point, uh, it's, it's, I, um, with that caveat, I actually think yes. This is the, the difference here is that, well, certainly we've seen um, tremendous spread of the disease in a very short period of time. The fact that today we are over 75,000 cases and we only found out about this virus as a global community at the end of December. So we're, we're seeing a pretty rapid spread and, and it's respiratory. And I think that's the real challenge here. So uh, certainly SARS was a, a, a major global public health problem. It, it changed the way we do global governance of disease. It really kind of awoke the entire global community to, to what our challenges are, how wonderful globalization are, is, but also the challenges of globalization and the importance of having a me- mechanisms in place for collaboration across countries and within the, within the UN system. Um, MERS, was, MERS is, was and continues to be frightening, uh, but we haven't seen this type of large-scale sustained human-to-human transmission, which is one of the reasons that um, eight years in, we've seen you know maybe 2,000 plus cases. Um, Ebola, West Africa, also a huge wake-up call for the global international health community. 
and um, an important moment in time for thinking about cooperation and assistance and the challenges of when a disease spreads in a population that has a very limited health care system. But Ebola, and we see, and again in, in DRC, where we're seeing an Ebola outbreak in a, in a tremendously um, complicated environment where, where you're trying to do response to a disease at the same time, you are also dealing with, with conflict and threats to the first responders themselves and other diseases like measles that are killing this more than people than the Ebola virus itself. All that mm-hmm. being said, Ebola, Ebola doesn't transmit nearly as easily as this particular coronavirus. So if you talk to anybody in the global health security community over the last decade and said, what are you most frightened about? The answer was almost always either influenza or a novel coronavirus. And the reason for that was not because we knew what was going to come next, but because of the challenges of containing and responding to a highly communicable respiratory virus. So, it, I, I, so I, I absolutely think that this is a, an a, a important moment for the global health security community, for thinking about global preparedness and response. It's also showing really wonderful things in the global community that, um, I, you know, over a thousand papers have been published to date of the scientific community rushing to, to try to, try to um, characterize what we know to date, that there's um, a, massive, uh, a massive push to develop medical countermeasures, that there is funding that is coming. So, so there's a lot of different pieces that are coming together and trying to apply everything we've learned over the last 10, 20 years to addressing this particular threat. So notwithstanding the shortcomings of China's initial response, I mean, scientifically, of course, they described they, they, they isolated the virus very quickly. But in terms of mm-hmm. the, the societal, the governmental response, there have been criticism and whatnot. Um, how do you rate the response? Notwithstanding that, how do you rate the response on the scale of, say, one to ten, one being terrible and <laughs> ten being optimal, really good? I mean, if you look at things, you know, places yeah. like Singapore, which is... Uh, very up in its response, uh, but you have dense population centers, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Bangkok, even in the close vicinity with China. How do you rate uh, the response so far now that it is broken, the, the virus is broken out and these other countries are dealing with it? Well, I, I wish I could give you a, a single number, but I don't think the answer is that simple. In part mm-hmm. because responding to an event like this is, is pretty complex. So not only are you taking measures to fight the virus, but you are also, uh, I think there's another way to measure based off of transparency, the trust you're building with your population, the respect for uh, human rights at a time that you, you are by definition trying to curtail them by curtailing population movement. Um, how are we doing risk communication? How, you know, so this is how, how much is the country also contributing to, um, to building the, the scientific evidence base and to working towards countermeasures. So, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of different actions that government, governments plural are taking in response to the virus. I think my assess, if you want my assessment of, of how China is doing, I think it's, 
it's hard to actually give an exact assessment in part because there, um, we see what we see. We don't see what we don't see. So I think that there's, there are still some questions about some issues of transparency, but that being said, they have taken, um, the, the current actions, they are, they are taking this extraordinarily seriously. They are mounting a response that is a, a kind of, it blows the mind to think about how one might try to put um, population movement curtailment on, on 760 million people. I mean, that's something I think only the Chinese could even contemplate. So, so they are, they are taking lots of actions. They are, they have, um, they are, they, as you mentioned before, they are building hospitals. They're doing all sorts of things. I, mm -hmm. it's hard to know exactly what their risk communication strategy is like. The, um, the, the population that is having, that is under quarantine are, um, are, are truly sacrificing. And I'm not even sure the word sacrifice is correct because I'm not sure they would have chosen to do this. But it is it is definitely a burden on this population. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to be able to to assess is what what this does to the to the mental health burden of this population, what it does in terms of what the um, are people still being able to access appropriate amounts of food and water, other health care, we're hearing reports that um, people aren't uh, a certain portion of the population isn't able to access the other the the life-sustaining drugs that they need for other diseases, including HIV. And we've seen in other large-scale outbreaks, like what we saw in West Africa, was that more people ended up dying from non-Ebola-related causes than from Ebola mm -hmm. during the outbreak because of lack of access to care. Uh, you know, if you were in a, in a road accident and you weren't able to go to a clinic. So I think one, one of the things that we're going to have to assess at the end of the day is all of these other factors and how they contribute to the overall response. But I think from, from an outsider perspective right now, China is taking a tremendous number of actions to, and to do everything they can to try to contain or at least control the spread of this virus. Right. No simple answers. Dr. Katz, thank you very much again for uh, spending your time for us this evening. Thank you. There is still a lot we don't know about this virus, about how it behaves, about how it will behave, how it will evolve. Until we see that clearly, it is unwise to make any assumptions. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Ghosh.